Getting the smile and confidence you've been dreaming about all from the comfort of your home isn't a total mystery with Bite Clear Aligners. Just don't be surprised if all your friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Welcome to the Seneca Podcast, a weekly discussion of current affairs in China, coming to you from the pop-up Chinese studio here in Beijing. I'm Kaiser Bo, joined this week by David Moser, academic director of the CET program here in Beijing, who's just come back from Chicago, where he was attending the annual AAS conference. So how was it, man? Very good. Uh, you weren't there. I wasn't, Unfortunately, yeah. yeah. But you have to go next year, because uh, Jeff Wasserstrom is organizing a Sinologist rock band. And oh, of course, really? you've got to be in there, you know, yeah, absolutely. screaming about filial piety or whatever we, <laughs> we choose. <laughs> That's what all my songs are about. Yeah. Um, any interesting panels you see? Uh... It's kind of so-so this year. Well, more to the point, did you book any interesting guests for me? <laughs> <laughs> Always, potentially. So um, listeners might be aware that we passed one of those milestones recently, the fifth anniversary of the launch of this podcast. I recorded the very first one on April 1st, 2010. That is not an April Fool's joke. With Jeremy and with Bill Bishop, we talked about the Google Plout, and since then we've done over 200 shows. So I want to take the opportunity to thank all of our listeners for continuing to uh, to download the damn thing and to to listen to us yammer on about things. Uh, thanks, and I'm really really appreciative for your continuing support. So David, today we're talking about the internet in China, uh, coming full circle once again. Um, <laughs> Uh, this time through a very interesting perspective, that of political that of political culture and how history has shaped and arguably continues to shape attitudes toward the Internet within China's leadership. So here's a proposition, David. Um, most politics boils down to conflicting interpretation of history. You in? That's right. That's uh, usually the job of the succeeding administration is to rewrite, uh, re- revise the recent history. Yeah. I so I'm, I, I mean, and I think political perspectives, I mean, uh, especially when we're talking about China, often they, they boil down to sort of your historiographic perspective. I mean, like, um, do you buy that uh, history has sort of immutable inertia? Do you, I mean, are you, do you subscribe to some kind of essentialist notions about the unchangeable? You know, whatever, what your history is kind of determines to me. I mean, if I talk to you about your beliefs about history, I can, I can extract your political beliefs. I mean, so I've been thinking about this a lot. As an American, I've been watching along with the whole country, this whole kerfuffle over the state of Indiana's new law, um, mm. ostensibly protecting religious freedom, but, you know, and this is being interpreted by most people as nothing more than the license for discrimination um, by businesses against LBGT, uh, LGBTQ people, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and on the basis of religious belief, um, the, the most major um, uproar in the last couple of days has been over this pizzeria, uh, the owner of which said she would refuse to cater a gay wedding if she were asked. So what does this have to do with history? Um so let's ignore for a moment the 
possible, well, probably problematic nature of this whole moral teleology that's inherent in the progressive agenda and in, in progressive ideology. Um, but, um, I mean, because, you know, it sees us moving inexorably toward, like, this more tolerant, you know, uh, greater cultural pluralism, right? The, the, that's, and ultimately that's, the end of history. Yeah, so yeah. Well, let's, let's just assume for a second that that is a desired direction, the desired direction. But um, we can still ask ourselves, is it is it really reasonable to expect that as historical change happens and as it's been happening over the past couple of decades and especially with attitudes toward <clears throat> LGBTQ people, um, that everyone immediately gets with the program? Is it is it sensible to expect that? Is it right to heap ridicule and opprobrium on the people who who aren't, who don't, aren't, aren't you know, whose mentalities haven't haven't flipped, um, or who are late somehow in adopting or you know in adapting to this new or have an alternative right. interpretation? Right. I mean, this is this is a, a, an even bigger question when you're crossing a border and crossing you know. Uh, into another culture. I mean, this is all happening within a single polity within, you know, it's a very plural polity, the United States. And, you know, there's a big difference between the North and the South. And, but 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 if you're talking about another country, if you're talking about, you know, like sub-Saharan African countries and attitudes toward toward people, toward gay people in Kenya or in, you know, other countries where this has been very, very problematic. Or what about in Russia, right? I mean, Russia is, uh, in many ways, a deeply conservative society where the Orthodox Church still holds a lot of sway, mm-hmm. um, where Putin's, you know, anti-gay agenda actually has a lot of resonance with, you know, with ordinary people, and we find that so detestable. Um, is it reasonable for us to expect that their revolution in thinking is up to date with our revolution in thinking? So you're, you're talking about simple cultural relativity here. Yeah. Are we so sure that, that our path is the inevitable one and that other countries will follow because it's the objectively the right one? Exactly. I mean, so that's the case in you know, China. There's, a, you know, very different historical experiences uh, between China and, and, and the West. That's a part of every damn discussion you have, right? right? And, and where your level of outrage and indignation is pretty much determined by where you come down on that continuum between absolutism uh, between you know ethical or cultural absolutism mm-hmm. versus relativism, right? Mm-hmm. So anyway, uh, all of this by way of introduction. <laughs> to, I mean, oh I, yeah, we're important. in China, aren't we? It's yeah. Important <laughs> to set this up. Uh, introduction to our guest and and the essay that uh, of his that wake we're up, going to Ro- discuss. Roger, wake up! Yeah, wake up! <laughs> he he fell asleep. So um, <laughs> hi guys, we're we're delighted to be joined by. I hate it when I come to your name. <laughs> Rogier, R- R- Roger. Uh, R- R- yeah, R- Roger is fine. Roger's yeah. fine. Okay, well, we're just going to go with Roger. I said that last time, but I always feel weird about mispronouncing <laughs> your name. Um, it's one of those damn Flemish names. It's yeah. impossible. We can't do those R's. Anyway, he's one of those people who we just absolutely insist will come in and join us for a podcast whenever he's in town. Uh, Roger is a postdoc research officer at the Program for Comparative Media Law and Policy at the University of Oxford's Center for Sociolegal Studies. He's also the author of the China Copyright and Media blog, which is an online resource providing access to an insight into Chinese law and policy. Real yeoman's work, really great, great oh, stuff. Indeed. Yeah. Indeed. Glad so, to be here. Yeah, welcome back, and uh, thanks for making time to join us. So you've recently written a chapter for a forthcoming book. Actually, I've, I've posted it to our Facebook page, and I'll, I'll, it will be obviously on the site when we, when we, uh, when, when we put it up. Uh, it's called, it's, it's, it's an essay, uh, very much in, in the essay form, as we, as we were talking about, uh, called Cyber Leninism, the Political Culture of the Chinese Internet. And it sets out really ambitiously to 
kind of situate the Chinese state's ambivalent relationship with the Internet and its current very controversial assertion of its own you know, particular approach to Internet governance within an historical context, the intellectual traditions and their related, related political culture uh, as it developed across imperial China's long history, right? I mean, that, that's fair. Do you think that's basically what you're trying I think, to do? I think that's what it's I'm It's pretty fucking to. ambitious, man. <laughs> Someone has to. Uh, so, I mean, you set out this, this, uh, this, in this discussion of Internet governance to, to, to try to present the government's point of view and to help the reader understand how that viewpoint was shaped. And that viewpoint was shaped, you know, by this particular conception, this particularly Chinese conception of politics, the Chinese political culture. I've used this word now a number of times. Um, so invoking political culture always risks tipping into essentialism, uh, into claims that this is how these people p- process politics. Thus it is, thus it ever sh- shall be. Um, but maybe before we go any further, we can like talk a little bit about what your definition of political culture is and how you use the idea in this piece. So what do you mean when you say political culture? Well, um, what I try to get at with political culture is that um, there seems to be a way that states do business, and that way is informed by a certain worldview, a certain way of analyzing the world as it is, and a certain um, theory for change, as well as legitimate ends. Now, obviously, I I really don't want to use it in, in a too essentialist term. Change mm-hmm. happens. Mm-hmm. Change happens all the time. Change happens everywhere. And I'm quite sure if, you know, I could teleport someone from, say, New York 1900 to today, he or she wouldn't recognize American culture uh, as it is. But the point is... Um, it is something that is inherited and transferred and transformed. Um, and so what I try to get at is sort of um, not deterministically saying this is the only thing that could have happened, but try to describe essentially what did happen and try to understand how that essentially sets the goalposts for what we are talking about today. As in when a Chinese bureaucrat who is trained in Chinese universities, who has been socialized in the Chinese political world, how do these people understand the task ahead of them and how do they act upon that? That specific task being how to regulate, how to deal with the, this this phenomenon, this technological yeah. and, and, and such so socially impactful phenomenon, right? Exactly. So when you're talking about the internet, obviously, most of all, uh, you're talking about the publication and dissemination of ideas and mm-hmm. knowledge and mm-hmm. facts. Um, but increasingly, and this is really a phenomenon of the last couple of years or so, you're also increasingly talking about models of surveillance. You're talking about what can be done with big data, you know, all this stuff that your your phone generates about you that can potentially be harvested and used for, for, for certain ways. And so if you fit that idea of technology into how does the Chinese state or the the officials of the Chinese state perceive the task ahead of them? And what do they see as the means to sort of go about that? How does China change the Internet? As opposed to the more normal question, how does how the Internet right, change right. China? Maybe get things concrete here a little bit, because you, you outline very well the sort of history of that. You make the case that although this, Lenin, this Leninist form of, of, of governance you're talking about, that the, both the Kuomintang and the, and the communist you know, adopted in the early part of the last century. Uh, maybe pull out some examples of, of the way that governance has, you know, 
perseverance or manifestations with, with this very new technology that, that nothing like that existed mm-hmm. back then. But, but the, where are the traces of this, this Leninist uh, framework in modern Internet surveillance? So the, so the key of Leninist is that it's an organizational method in order to um, take <coughs> Marxist theory and put them into political reality. Right. Um, so when you are Lenin and you're dealing with the fact that in Russia, a lot of the typical expectations that Marxist theory would have aren't there. Russia is not an industrial state, for instance, it's an agricultural state. Marx said, you know, the revolution mm-hmm. towards communism is going to be the product of the, in, of the right. industrial um, the industrial impoverished masses. Right. So Lenin now, recognized this this phenomenon mm-hmm. that he called economism, whereby the the class that ought to have revolutionary consciousness somehow doesn't, doesn't develop it, and so it's up to this declasse uh, vanguard vanguard proletariat. So, so Mao had to revise Marxism to fit the Chinese case. Yeah. So but when you use Leninism, we're talking essentially about democratic centralism, and it's yeah. Right. And you can you can't completely suck out the ideology depending on your definition of ideology, because ideology does two things. One, it has a very substantive angle, right? What are the things, what, what do we want the world to look like? Do we want, I don't know, um, public ownership of the means of production? Do we want a free market system? And so on and so forth. But what it also does, sort of um, usually less explicated, but perhaps at least as important, is it has an epistemological layer that you need to talk about. And so a very strong epistemological layer in Leninism, and that's one of the crises. If you read Archie Brown's great book, The Rise and Fall of Communism, he describes it very well. Leninism assumes that that the masses are the masses and that the masses want the same thing. Mm. And throughout history, there have been various definitions of the thing that the masses want. But the epistemological assumption that that is one thing, or at least a set of things that aren't mutually exclusive, that is something you still see very strongly in China today, certainly in political discourse. Mm-hmm. So let's take this back then. Um, and, and we're talking about Internet governance. And so how does this manifest itself? Online? Um, I guess certainly the the biggest point that you would see is um, the way that you talk about information. So the idea that there is a correct set of opinions, beliefs, values that are that contribute to the project of the party. And if you want to put something online that doesn't conform to those values, it is liable to removal and you may be liable to punishment. But increasingly, what you're also seeing is the use of technology to nudge, uh, as it were, people's behavior. Last June, for instance, the state council issued a social credit scheme where the idea is that um, as technology improves, there's now 550 million cell phones in China. That's and right. they all generate... Smartphones. Smartphones, smartphones yeah, sorry. Um, they all generate enormous amounts of data. And the plan of the social credit system is to capture some of the data, evaluate how people are behaving, and then you know give them a score on that. So to say that your health app tells us that you're not doing enough exercise, so you get a reduced health score, or you smoke, or you, or you drink, or whatever. Um, but that is also going to be applied to the way that you behave vis-a-vis other people on the internet. And obviously, there are many things we agree with, right? There are fundamental norms of civility that I believe aren't necessarily uh, the province of China alone, or indeed any country or culture. But it does mean that the party gets to set the ends, and gets to decide how, how in, 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 in theory, every single owner of a smartphone can be measured. Mm. This, puts, this puts the control system of the Danway system under Mao to shame. This, this is a level of 
surveillance control that couldn't be matched under that. that Absolutely. What technology does is it, it, it reduces costs and increases efficiency. And if, you know, China, um, you had the Dangan system way back when, where, you know, everyone yeah. had a personal paper file. The problem with paper files being that they're difficult to maintain, they're difficult to update. I mean, anyone who's ever had to, um, you know, move their data, move, yeah. move their data. Um, but sort of anyone who's ever worked in, say, a newspaper with paper archives just knows, you know, the Stasi in Berlin needed, needed, needed like <laughs> a complete city block to just sort of store right. all the paperwork that they, that they had about everyone. And that is now being replaced digitally by these very, very advanced means. Yeah. When you, when you describe it this way, it sounds very, very uh, paternal, paternalistic. I mean, it, it has that sort of patriarchal uh, Confucian bent to it. Well, don't, the, don't forget, way back when in the empire, you had, uh, during the Qing dynasty, you had Kangxi's sacred edict, which was a list of 16 commandments, where on, I think on a weekly or monthly basis, there would be a sort of a, a crier to go to each village to declamate this sacred edict. Mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. then, you know, in the, perhaps in a way, like you get the sort of the homily after the gospel in a, in a Catholic church to sort of explain what that means through concrete stories. And there are great, great sort of memoirs by some of the late Qing reformers saying that, you know, they actually, they, they as, as children, they were very fond of that. I, I'm curious, though, when you do this, when you when you play this kind of parlor game um, that is very common to historians, when you talk about the old wine and the new bottles, uh, <laughs> do you have to do you have to you have a choice? And you have to say, so history is 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 relevant. What history? Which history? What 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 pieces of history do you do you then choose? And uh, what you choose is, I mean, in in your case, you were very ambitious. I mean, you went you went all the way to that kind of Confucian versus um, Taoist. Dyad, mm-hmm. right? Uh, which was kind of uh, an interesting choice. I mean, and, and one that I think you, you talk. I mean, you, you kind of painted it as centralization, order, hierarchy versus decentralization, disorder, rebellion, right? Uh, <laughs> I mean, that great, great starting point for conversation. How how wedded to that idea are you? Well, it's 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 an it's an idea that I got from a book that I was reading by uh, uh, by the late Lucian Pai, mm-hmm. right? Um, I guess it is interesting in that sense of sort of how how do you define the tasks of the state? And in the Confucian state, um, the idea was that the state was more than anything else a moral authority. In fact, sort of when um, I think Timothy Brook in, in one of his great books on the Ming Dynasty writes literally that uh, the Ming state did not the Ming state and I assume personally the Qing state as well, they did not really sort of intervene much in the daily lives of citizens in the sense that we have come to expect from states through welfare, through mobilization of resources and so on and so forth. The Chinese state historically was very small. Um, but but the task they did have was to maintain moral unity. Um, and if you uh, uh, sort of a correct interpretation of the moral life which combines loyalty to to the system and loyalty to the emperor with a lifestyle based on doing the right thing. And you find echoes of it now, you're suggesting? Rather. Um, David, do you, do you think do you hear that? Well, yeah, actually, I was going to ask the, the, the same kind of question. I mean, uh, maybe just go back for a little bit of a history, at least my viewpoint, and see what you think, Roger. But mm-hmm. uh, it seems like after, when during the Deng Xiaoping era, or during the Mao era, the arts were asked to were explicitly politicized. They were asked to 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 be propaganda mm-hmm. and to serve the people mm-hmm. under the Yan'an, the Mao Yan'an framework. It seems to me that 
at Gaiga Kaifeng when Deng took power, that people were disenchanted and disillusioned about politics in general. And it took a sort of two-tiered approach where politics became, where the arts were asked to entertain and even uh, in terms of uh, the broadcast media to be self-sufficient. In other words, no more state subsidies. Back then, uh, CCTV was just a state subsidy. Now, gradually, I don't know what it is now, 90% or more is is from advertising funds. Mm -hmm. So in a certain sense, the arts were were allowed to depart I mean, yeah, to depart the entertainment and, and the, mm-hmm. the, com- the commercial thing. And, and then, so, so there's, I talked about it in this piece that I wrote for, Dan, for Jeremy's old danway.org site about media schizophrenia, that, mm-hmm. that it was, there was sort of this split between the media, between the arts, between the news, what I said, and everything else. Mm-hmm. So the news and politics was, sub- was, was subsumed under the CCTV evening news, and, and then everything else, you could be totally free to say what, but stay away from politics. Mm-hmm. And now it seems to be, that that the the party through the revival of Confucianism and all these other means has decided that it wants we, to reclaim we this. want to reclaim the moral authority as well and get that back into the arts mm-hmm. and you had by the way interestingly at the last uh, uh, spring festival gala the CCTV Chunwan, uh, you know a, a Xiangzheng piece a crosstalk piece that was basically commissioned by the government on an anti-corruption theme and and far from being a sort of a uh, the the lone voice crying against uh, speaking truth to power, they said we want you to do a piece on anti-corruption, and they sort of <laughs> vetted the script about a dozen times. And the, you know they were the government was mandating a, a piece, so so now they're getting their hand in you know this. In, so I, does that sound right to you? And what are the implications for the internet that you're talking about? Um, um, I guess uh, um, you're quite right about sort of. Um, the increased uh, liberty for the arts in the 80s, but let's not forget that. And, and 90s, though. In the 90s already, after Tiananmen, you, you, you see these sort of things change already. I'm not sure about that. Um, I don't know about that. I think they, they, they continue to allow it to... I mean, uh, this, is, this is, you know, in my area, in rock and roll, right? And this is where it was more free than ever. Yeah. In the 90s, they just let it go. They stopped they, yeah. cracking down on it at all. Just uh, don't challenge our legitimacy, right. <laughs> and you can have drugs, sex, drugs, and rock and roll, right? And there was no revival of Confucius by at that time either. No, but um, I guess what I want to say is, uh, at, at least in the policy documents, and it's taken a long time, so right after 1989, you start seeing changes in the way that news is reported. Mm-hmm. Um, so you get this new propaganda line about, we only report on positive propaganda. Um, and then from around the mid-2000s onwards is this whole cultural rejuvenation, building up the cultural industries in order to, you know, create a spiritual society, right? We all know the lingo. Um, I guess what the internet has done is done a couple of things. Um, One, traditional media were sort of, you had a core of professional people that was relatively small, relatively easy to control, relatively easy to sort of keep your eye on, and therefore relatively easy to sanction if they went overboard. Um, and what the internet did is it sort of broke through that, where, hey, suddenly you have not only big Vs, but these big Vs of millions of followers. And that breaks that model. And it seems to me that surprised the leadership in mm-hmm, some way that mm-hmm, that would mm-hmm. happen. And in a way... That's, I agree, exactly. Yeah. What, 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 so what you had in the traditional media sphere was a sphere that for all intents and purposes, was a, was a lot like the way that the party wanted it to look like. And then the internet comes in and sort of demonstrates, um, wait a minute, 
not everyone is on board with this way of looking at the world. Yeah, and you also had this, uh, you know, the uh, I tell my students, you know, the, probably one of the biggest differences in the U.S. media, the Chinese media, is the split between, you know, the U.S. in the U.S. there's no meaningful uh, distinction between news and entertainment, mm-hmm. between politics and entertainment. They mm-hmm. are they are literally and figuratively in bed with each other, <laughs> with with Al Franken becoming a senator and Richard Nixon doing jokes on you know and. And Ronald Reagan and, and the Daily Show, which is political and also entertainment, the Bill O'Reilly and everything. Mm-hmm. But in China, not so. I mean, you absolute split entertainment. People don't get in bed with political. Well, they do, but I mean, you don't. <laughs> study, uh, right. Probably you to name just yeah. one. Yes, right. But that's, she's about the only one, too. But the <laughs> problem with the big Vs was that they these were Yao Chen. These were actors, mm-hmm. entertainers, mm-hmm. Uh, media celebrities, and they were getting a political voice. And it was getting dangerously close to this Angelina Jolie, Brad Pitt. You know, you're in politics, but you're also an actor, you know. And and they had to clamp down on that. And they basically disabled the virality function of Weibo. Yeah. That's how they did it. Yeah. So I want to go back a little bit. There was this maybe tendency after the collapse of Soviet communism in 1991 with the the Velvet Revolutions that started in in that, that magical year, 89, we we got a little complacent. Um, I mean, we talked about Mark Lilla and, and this piece that he wrote suggesting that that was the case. Uh, but in recent years, I've seen this tendency now to reexamine the contributions of, of of the Enlightenment to the content of our thought of of our political ideology now. And and I think your piece is kind of very much in that mold, right? You're, you're looking at ah, this is not something universal. This is something specific to um, the West and can we find an analogy in in Chinese thought? And the interesting being the interesting thing being, of course, that in China the Enlightenment comes in through the back door of Marxism, which who also was an Enlightenment philosopher. Let's not forget. Mm. Maybe. Wow, I never thought of it that way. Really? Is he? I, no, I, I don't know. I mean, I think that the Enlightenment came in through, you know, through Bertrand Russell and John Dewey. Ah, uh, there and, you go. The May Fourth you know, Movement. Uh, May Fourth right, yeah. Movement. I, that's what I, I would say. But, um, oh, but, no, but, but I guess what, what I want to here here's here. How, how do you determine what is the, really the relevant history? This is what I was trying to get at before. When I was saying, mm-hmm. You know, you were looking at that sort of that Lucian Pye idea of, of this. I mean, is that what, what does, made you decide that that was particularly instructive to understanding the, 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 <laughs> the, 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 the Chinese attitude toward the Chinese state's attitude toward the Internet? Um, I guess what I find particularly interesting is actually this essay and it is very much sort of an essay in that this is me just throwing some ideas out there and hope that some of them are at least worth discussing. Oh, they are. We're discussing them now. Right? <laughs> <laughs> um, I guess I guess I was I was asked to write this uh, this chapter um, after I was asked to read another chapter. Um, the concept of Debug is sort of are there alternative conceptions of the internet and how mm-hmm. are they mm-hmm. how are they mm-hmm. rooted in cultural backgrounds okay, very good. Um, and I was asked to read another contribution um, which was essentially sort of Confucianist ideas of free speech which was sort of rehashing the in Confucianism we have this tradition of remonstrance and so on and so forth and um, from that starting point it, we've all heard this I don't think it tells us a lot you know uh, Stupid example in Christianity, you can you can find Christians or, or to, you you find people who justify um, picketing veterans' um, funerals in very offensive ways. Uh, they justify that on a Christian basis, and you have the most wonderful people in the world with very charitable 
plans who justify their views on a Christian basis. So to me, it didn't seem like sort of in isolation looking at, you know, some Confucian terms or words did a lot for us. Rather, I wanted to see how you combine the ideas of sort of Confucian philosophical tenets with statecraft, the necessity of governing, the necessity of getting maintaining and reinforcing power. Mm-hmm. And I thought what I found particularly interesting in Pai's approach is that he brings in the idea of tension, the idea that there is a constant sort of need, perceived need at the center of the Chinese state to tame centrifugal forces, mm-hmm. to tame forces who um, are radical in their own way, who do not necessarily subscribe to the claims of legitimacy and authority of the system as it is. Mm-hmm. Um, and then to see over the last two, 200 years, how, how does that change? What are the influences? How does sort of political change? So what, you happen at, what, what happens very interestingly at the end of the Qing dynasty, and obviously I'm doing huge injustice to a very, very complex historical process, but at least intellectually, you go from the Qianlong letter to George III, where he, where he says, I'm not interested in your toys and trinkets, to a recognition after the First Opium War that, wait a minute, maybe we can use some of this technology, but our political system is still, right, our, our political system is still morally superior, to the sort of cultural patricide that you get at the end of the Qing dynasty, where Confucian culture itself is held responsible for, you know, what what people start calling the backwardness of China. Right. David and I had actually done a podcast where we looked at, you know, self-strengthening revisited, and it does sort of seem like it's rolled back from that cultural iconoclasm, that patricide that you're talking about, and has has gone back to 1865 and then said, hey— the, the internet is useful to us, but it's also dangerous. Let's let's tiyung this fucker. Let's, <laughs> let's that's a, I'm gonna write that down. Let's tiyung this fucker. That's good. That's a good line. All right. Exactly. No, and and I guess the one difference with I mean, a lot of people these days are making comparisons to China and the late Qing. I guess the key difference is now is that whatever else, whatever some other people may think, I think the governing structure of this country is a lot more firmly embedded. Um, than the, the empire was in 1865. Right. And so do you think the internet, uh, getting back to the internet, poses a threat in precisely the way you just categorize or, or, or Lucian Pai categorizes this this tension between uh, centrism and monism and the unruly... Uh, See, that's where I would I would kind of want to push back. I mean, that's I, uh, my that's, my sense that's is the that, implication of what mm-hmm. he's saying, right? Right. That right. The that's, internet that's, represents that. This is that why danger. I got, this kind of stuck in my craw a little bit because mm-hmm. of that. I said, you know, the the tension now. Is interestingly between this worldview that you've described, but on the other end of it is not uh, a, a you know people who want to take their clothes off and go into the bamboo groves with pots of wine. Uh, it's not that at all. It's people who are championing <coughs> enlightenment values, who are oh are championing another set of enlightenment values. That is, um, that's that's what I, I feel like. That this is a transcultural. Uh, phenomenon now. This is a dyad that is no longer contained within a sort of the old Chinese cultural. Oh no, absolutely. And I did not in any way want to imply that. Rather, you know, what I want to say is the cultural holdover is this idea of struggle of sort of order as defined within the political system versus rebellion equally as defined within the political system. And if you look at the way 
those things are defined within the political system. Read document number nine. Right. This yeah. is as, this is essentially where you say these are the heterodox beliefs that we find constitute an ideological threat. Mm. Yeah, that's right. You mentioned Tiyong. Maybe this that's kind of interesting. It's it's almost as if they're they're saying we want to use the dynamism of the internet as a as a for that per, you know for e commerce to uh, you know to 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 fulfill a surveillance state function well but we want to re- retain control also over the to enrich the, the, the people to bring yeah. you know wealth and power to and, uh, and and this is always this is always the tension right um, there's a wonderful bo- uh, book uh, by James Scott called seeing like a state it's, it's, right. it's okay. called, called what seeing, seeing like, like a state, state. It, it gets it gets recommended to me often I need to read yeah. it finally yeah. well it's it's from the 90s essentially what Scott uh, what Scott says is increasingly we see that states everywhere in the world <laughs> resort to mechanisms of ordering in order to be able to govern. Um, the problem is in many cases that is counterproductive. So one of the examples, he's, he started out in agricultural sciences. One of the examples he gives is of these sort of forestry monocultures where you replace a natural forest with like these sort of single tree in a straight line sure. sort of sort of forest. Um, and he says, well, the problem is that, um, af- is that uh, after a rel- relatively short period of time, the the wealth of nutrients in the forest disappears because you have a monoculture. And increasingly, we're doing that in societies as well. But the problem is we're very often doing so for very good reasons. Mm. And this is this is the thing. I mean, even before we start talking about China, with we, we've all been reading Yevgeny Morozov's um, sort of work on the anti-democratic potential of technology. Mm-hmm. Um, and he has a very strong argument. We've also all been reading Cass Sunstein's work on nudging. And we also believe that, indeed, if technology can make lives better, it should. The, the, I find myself very much caught in the tension between, as in, so I got this app on as my... As do I. Yeah, yeah sure. I, I've got this app on my iPhone, which keeps track of uh, how much I exercise, which is too little, how many steps I take in a day, and so on and so forth. Yeah, I'm trying um, to figure out a way to delete that thing. You can't delete it. No, right? you can't delete it. It's yeah. locked into, right? It's hard-coded into the system. You have to hack your phone in order to get rid of it. Now, um in a way, if this means that <coughs> I might do some more exercise or other people might some do, do some more exercise, that's great. Sooner or later, and I think sooner rather than later, there will be sensors that will sort of figure out whether or not you're having a heart attack with your phone on you and, and they'll call the ambulance <laughs> automatically. Right. And that saves lives. And I can see how that's a great thing. At the same time, um, you're in a situation where it's not going to be long before health insurance companies are going to go. If you can show to us with your Apple Health app, that you are behaving in a healthy way, You'll we're going to give you a discount. Right, right. So this is not a Chinese problem. This is a world. This is a global problem with the internet intrinsically. And that's right? where you end up at the end of your piece, right? Well, what a, the conclusion that I get at the end of the piece is that in very interesting ways, the internet, because it's such a lens, because it makes so many things visible that hitherto, right, you have pu- the conversations you used to have in the pub, you now have online. Where, where Exactly, yeah. Um, yeah. And, and because... Because they are that lens, they sort of relentlessly focus on the problems in any political system in which it exists mm-hmm. and, and sort of relentlessly exposes the contradiction inherent to that. Mm-hmm. Now, my point is, um, and, and this is where I have deep, deep, deep sympathy for, for people like Isaiah Berlin, who essentially wrote, this may be very boring what I say, but the only, but the only option there is for political life is continuous compromise, negotiation, and knowing that right. we can never be perfect. Um, that's the point, right? Um, 
I, I don't hold truck. In a way, it seems to me that epistemologically, a lot of the sort of San Francisco ideology that you get in tech these days isn't so different from a Leninist agenda in progress in very many ways. <laughs> yeah. um, and what I'd like to see is that we repoliticize those questions just in order to sort of have some sort of socially representative debate on this. Let's talk a little bit about um, our understanding of Chinese Internet users because, you know, what, we're, what we are talking about is the way that Chinese people use the Internet. And um, I, I, I encounter, I mean, I, I do a lot of talking about this and I encounter a lot of people you who do this for a living. pontificate on this stuff all the time. And um, I think that there's a lot of people who get something fundamentally wrong in the way that we look at Chinese Internet users. They're, they're, there's maybe a least sophisticated understanding that maybe sees Chinese internet users as one of three basic types. There's either the, you know, entirely frivolous, you know, uh, online games and cute cat videos and food porn and chatting up pretty girls or, or handsome boys, that, that sort of thing. Um, you know, people who see the internet as more entertainment superhighway than, than, than information superhighway, right? And then there's a second type uh, that, that are, of course, the, the repressed, the politically repressed latent Democrats who are yearning to be free, right, and who spend all their time concerned about censorship issues and free speech. And a third that are like, um, you know, fire-breathing nationalists, you know, who are just going <laughs> to bite your head off if you insult the uh, honor of the motherland somehow. You got these three, and then the, 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 the least sophisticated will only identify one of these three and think that's what the Chinese Internet is. A second, maybe slightly more sophisticated case will see, oh, yeah, there are these three discrete groups in China. Mm-hmm. And I would reject both of those ideas. I, I would say that what you actually have is these three types coextant in almost all Chinese Internet users. That, that Oh, absolutely. And, and, and I guess... This is this is the point to Chinese intellectual life. Um, one of the ideas that I stole from Lucian Pai is that political, <laughs> well, political debate rarely was about sort of fundamental differences in policy. Right. It was more it was more about obedience. So you have this Confucian tradition where you could be radical intellectually at various points in the empire. The late Ming, for instance, is a beautiful example of that. Um, and you could get away with that in the same way that during the 18th, 19th century, the British aristocracy, it was almost expected that you had eccentricities, eccentricities and mm. sort of <clears throat> people who, because they are members of a particular system, for whatever reason, in Confucius, it was sort of deep study and doing the exams in the British aristocracies. Hey, you, you were born there. Um, they were tolerated. Um, sure. And 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 that also th- that's why I think it is so wrong to sort of merely look at Confucian texts to describe the empire. You have these, you know, you have this very complex intellectual sphere where everyone has different ideas, but also different ideas that very often we find incompatible. So in China, it's perfectly logical that you have a chat, or, or perfectly normal that you have a chat with someone who is economically very liberal but then also rabidly nationalist mm-hmm, mm-hmm. because economic liberalism might be in that person's head a better way than a semi-planned economy, what we have now, to strengthen the country. Um, and you have millions of permutations of various ideas and various habits. I mean, I look at cute cat videos every now and then. <laughs> I get tired at the end of the day. Right. Sure. Yeah. Um, well, let, let me ask a question before we get run out of time because I, something I really did want to ask you sort of related to that, which is, uh, it seems to me, historically, when the Internet came to China in the 90s, that the, the tactic then was, was just denial, which is when people would mention Internet censorship, they would say, 
what we do? No, we don't. There's no <laughs> such thing as internet censorship. And then uh, the, we the doing that all the way up until you know 2010, 2011. Well, right? well, this is this is my point. I think way last year. Yes, oh, I believe there are some websites that may not be accessible. Yeah, but the, my point, my point is, it's it's gone beyond that. The, the government is now in a. It, it went from just denial to sort of, uh, you know, vague hand-waving. Mm-hmm. And now it seems to me that with Lue is a good example, right? They're engaged because it's so transparent now, and I think the Internet has done this, has exploded that the ability to do that. Now they're engaged in spin, yeah. which is they've got to stand in front of the press, they've got to stand in front of Mark Zuckerberg, and they've got to say, yes, we censor our, our Internet. We have a different guoqing. We have a different set of things. Uh, sovereignty so- trumps human rights, mm-hmm. you know. And we're right to do so. And you do it too. And now they're engaged in this, this dialogue, which yeah. I think is a good thing that the Internet has mm-hmm. done. So what, what's your take on that? Well, I fully agree. The only, the only sort of small correction I would make is that Lue will never say, yes, we censor the Internet. Rather, what he says is, you control information, don't you? Well, so do we. Right. You have laws on hate speech, don't you? Well, he uses well, the we have cyber sovereignty. Yeah, you know? exactly. Yeah, right. and, 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 and so... So it's that point. It's spin. It, 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 it's indeed spin. And <laughs> it sounds like Fox News. You know. And they've gotten very good at it. And in a way, the birth of spin on the Chinese internet, um, or at least a symbolic moment that saw that was the Wenzhou train crash, where, do you remember this uh, minister yeah, sure, of, of railways, the said, minister of railways? I, you, you can believe it. And so it was, it was that. It was the images on Weibo of train carriages yeah. being buried and so on and so forth. Um, yeah. And then if you draw that one step further, this isn't just the central government. This is the local government as well. And so in that sense, the Internet is also a great way to centralize within the party itself. Did, do you know you could download a CDIC app to report your favorite corrupt official? <laughs> All wow. right. I your, won't get that one. Your favorite. So you're saying it's solving this problem of the, the, the mountain is high, the upper is far away, the, de- the, the decentralization. It, that, it solves that, or it's helping to solve that. That's certainly what, what certain people in Beijing think it does. Uh, never underestimate the ability of local satraps uh, uh, to, uh, to sort of fly under whatever radar they can find. Mm. Um, but that's one of the things, indeed, that sort of um, Beijing wants it to do. So, Roger, what do we do with this knowledge? So let's say we accept, we take as descriptively accurate anyway, that, that indeed the Chinese state's attitude toward the Internet and its governments are very much shaped and conditioned by political culture, by a very old political culture. So how should policymakers, I mean, particularly those who are engaging with China on issues related to Internet governance, how should we process that information? What should we do? What should we do differently now that we understand this to be the case? Um now, this is a very difficult one because obviously this is certainly at the moment, uh, given the events of last of the last couple of weeks where we had this cyber attacks on GitHub and mm-hmm, Great Fire, mm-hmm. this is a very sensitive thing. Um, and you're you're dealing with irreconcilable views there. You have the good people at Great at Great Fire who I believe are honestly believing that they're doing a good thing for humanity by as, as they would put it, liberating the Chinese surfing netizen. The Chinese state says, well, no, the Great Firewall of China is a critical piece of our national security infrastructure that is under attack by a foreign power. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> <Right>. We are... <laughs> we, what I would and the, say and there, is that, and there it stops, right? I mean, it's well, like... The, we, we are at a point do? in time where there are questions about how do we globally govern the Internet at a very, very technical level. Um 
This is the conversation we had last time. Yeah, here, I, right? ICANN is up for reform. Um, it's no longer going to be a, a contracted entity of the U.S. Department of Justice. It, the U.S. has essentially said it wants to relinquish control, but it wants to do so to a sort of multi, well-recognized Multi, right. multi-stakeholder entity. Um, so the things is, you have different issues at play. One of the things that Internet people are very scared of is this whole idea of balkanization. The mm. idea that the Internet is going to yeah. splinter into different national intranets. And... <clears throat> Well, if you read, you know, Harsh Taneha's uh, Northwestern University study on that, mm-hmm. it's already the case. It, it sort of self-splits into yeah. into ethno-linguistic internets. That the idea that there is this Chinese internet and then the rest of the world is all one is not true. There is a Spanish language yeah. internet. There is a francophone internet. There's yeah, but when you look at it from the U.S. point of view, they're all using Facebook in whichever language, and so. Um, one dominant concern for the U.S. is the ability of U.S. tech companies to continue to commercially gain from a, a very strong position in the global Internet, mm-hmm. uh, which is going to become more difficult once you get um, w- once you get the sort of the Internet equivalent of trade barriers and local protectionism. I'm not so sure at the moment. It seems that Facebook has done very, very well in sort of in Europe, for instance, we had so many pretty much every European country had their own social network before Facebook came. But you have enough people in Europe who move across borders for Facebook to be attractive because that's what everyone used, right? Um, And so I I, I think you're you're still going to see very strong network effects, but I also think that the United States particularly is very concerned about what this would mean for the market power of American companies, particularly when you're increasingly worried about data protection. and national security. We all know that Apple very visibly uh, started, um, well, announced that they would submit to uh, product security reviews right. uh, f- for every new product. So we have seen over the last couple of years that uh, there has been a big t- push towards indigenization of hardware. We're seeing this now in the banking sector, those controversial regulations that came out just a couple of months ago. Um, and so I guess the point is what this knowledge will help us to do or at least I hope it could help us to do, is to perhaps better understand what is at stake and how could we get it. Um, In that sense, um, I I can be cynical every now and then and just say, (laughs) this is a moment that is going to be about real politic rather than sort of strongly moral, sort of idealist uh, uh, tones. But, But the point is, sooner or later, a discussion is going to be had about market access. Sooner or later, a discussion is going to be had about the protection of data and increasingly globalized value chains. I mean, uh, in the same way that China had batteries of low-cost workers that replaced Western manufacturing jobs, China now has a battery of very well-educated people Mm -hmm. who could very well be employed to do sort of mass data analysis um, in globalized value chains so that, say... My supermarket loyalty card, all that information is going to China to find out how to derive better algorithms to make me buy more stuff. Mm. Um, we'll bet on it. <laughs> well, will exactly. Happen. It's already happened. <laughs> so, 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 right, those value chains are reconfiguring themselves. And I guess the question for us is, if we cannot get everything we want, what are the things we want most? And obviously, that's an internal discussion that the United States, European countries should have. But then also, you know, in terms of trying to develop achievable ways of rebuilding trust in global cyberspace, because it's kind of at quite low at the moment. <laughs> um, 
But this is but this is like getting off the sub. They're like two different issues. Cybersecurity is an issue, but this other thing, the blocking information for self-preservation, it seems to be an, another thing. And it seems like what Lue is doing is co-opting one to, you know, using the language of one to to disguise or justify the other. And so my question is. This is this got Kaiser's question. You know, mm-hmm. how sustainable is this? Is this internet uh, Chinese internet principle of, of blocking sensitive information? Is it sustainable? And then the moral question, you know, are we the ones, or can the world as a whole say, look, no, this is freedom of speech. This is this is something about human rights. Um, from the point of view of is it sustainable? Um, and, you know, we've been talking a lot about that in sort of China watching circles after David Chambaugh dropped his little bomb a couple of weeks ago. Sure. Um, I'd not be surprised if it is a lot more sustainable than, than people give it, yeah. give it credit for. Um, because the whole point is, um, it, it seems that very often we think that because people are um, because people are unhappy, they will choose regime change. Congress approval ratings is at single digits at the moment. Yeah. I don't see revolution happening in the United States anytime soon. Um, I think, I, th- I think we as members of the chattering classes, maybe sort of, and you could look at it very cynically and say, well, it is actually very easy to make people accept normality and act reasonably within <laughs> the space that they are given. Mm-hmm. Um, you could look at it from a very utilitarian point of view, as in. Maybe there is a very strong sense among the Chinese people that the present system, while not perfect in many ways, is still a lot better right. than than most conceivable alternatives, particularly in the absence of plausible scenarios for change. Right. Um, maybe it's a matter of co-opting enough people in the right way. And, and, and maybe it's, I mean, one of the things that this internet technology does is it individualizes achievement and sort of life outcomes, as you will, as in... If you don't have a nice house to live in, that's because you on our social credit score didn't work hard enough. It isn't because you live in an oppressive system that collectively creates these issues in the same way that um, in many ways has happened in the West. Right. Look, Mm -hmm. just just look at the way that we talk about higher education. Mm. It isn't a social good that people get educated in certain ways out of a a particular shared view of citizenship. Rather, it is an investment in your career. And hey, if you're still in debt when you're 50, that's, you know, you made the wrong choices or you didn't work hard enough. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, so so there are all these various ideas on why it might be more resilient than we think. Um, I think there's something to many of them. Um, I think it's more resilient than we think. As in the sort of the question of what are our choices? Um, I hope I'm not being controversial when I say that... Um, when we when we were talking about that very interesting year, nineteen eighty nine, a week or, a week or three after everything happened, um, Brent Scowcroft, I think it was National Security Advisor, right, he came wasn't. here to, to talk directly. Yeah, came here to talk directly, and particularly to ensure that the relationship lasted. And it just seems to me that at many junctures where the option was there to diplomatically put a lot more pressure on particular points of human rights in exchange for trade benefits. <laughs> that didn't happen. We were craven, yes. Well, <laughs> no, <laughs> I, don't, I don't think that was the case at all. I think that there was a real concern about, you know, what what really happens if this thing goes tits up? There was, but uh, I think we were, there also was the craven aspect. Both. Well, and, and again, I, it's more, I want to, I don't want to sort of say this sort of very directly and say this was the case, but it does seem to me that there were opportunities 
that could have been taken differently. And it, it seems to me that we're at this point now where I'm not... I'm just not sure about how seriously we are seen in the eyes of Beijing when we talk about human rights, knowing that yeah. sooner or later market power will draw us back to, nego- right. to the negotiating table. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, I want to just wrap up our discussion with this of, of this fascinating essay by by pointing out that there are many places where you just sort of toss off these lines rather casually <laughs> uh, <laughs> that I think would be very much worthy of a, of a book on their own or at least an essay. For instance, you say the Chinese Empire has never known an equivalent of the Catholic Church with an inflexible theology, <laughs> subst- substantial political influence, separate hierarchy and administration, and its inquisition. I almost feel like that captures the most significant difference between China and the West. That's certainly a book-worthy thing um, yeah. that, that I've, I've, I've reflected on. David, we, you and I remember that epic Quora answer that I gave. You know, I talk about yes. Guelphs and Ghibellines and that's 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 there. Another point you and you, you talk about the party's relationship with intellectuals and how it's shaped, you know, since really uh, during the years at Yan'an. You talk about this kind of cycle of loosening and tightening, and that that again, that's a very interesting topic. Um, you know, we China watchers love cyclical stuff, um, <laughs> and yeah, you got the Hundred Flowers movement, and then the anti-bourgeois, uh, I mean, the anti-rice campaign. You got the Democracy Wall movement, and then the '86 right. movement, yes. and well, at Democracy Wall, and then and anti-spiritual pollution. And then the '86 stuff and the anti-bourgeois liberalization, and then you, you, you can think that maybe all that that loosening period between well 2002 and 2008 or nine, then followed by you know what we've got now. Uh, <laughs> it's been yeah very interesting. Um, so I think let's let's wrap and 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 talk a little bit about our, our recommendations for the week. Um, I'm going to go first here because I think there's there's an essay which I think it relates very closely to what we've been talking about. And I'm sure everybody who, who, who watches China has already read this, but I just wanted to use this opportunity to just talk very briefly about this piece and what you guys thought of it. That, of course, is Evan Osnes's piece, uh, his big, big, what is I mean, like probably seven 8,000 word piece on, on Xi Jinping uh, called Born Red. Uh, and uh, I, I, I think there's some tremendously good reporting in it. There's a, a lot of very felicitous turns of phrase, some great writing. Um, but there was something in it that left me unsatisfied, and that was this, that I, I felt like – uh, I don't blame, blame Evan for this. Um, I really don't. I, I mean, this is this is just a, a part of the problem always. Uh, is that, that the intellectuals who get interviewed in there are uniformly these uh, – Critical intellectuals, and and in, in fact, some, some who are are quite on the fringe of, I mean, to the point where they're being followed around, Hui Fang and the likes. Um, there's there's quite a bit of discussion about you know the Puder Changs and all the, the various rights lawyers and things like that. There aren't a lot of discussions with the, your, sort of your average intellectual, your, your college professor in one of the natural sciences or in engineering who who might have a very different take. On on C, there's we're left again wondering. You know, we've we've seen this portrait of this essentially. I mean, a guy who comes off, I think, to to many American readers as quite monstrous. You know, who is you know quite egotistical. You know, he has that horrible sin of the autodidact of actually announcing his own literary accomplishments, <laughs> and that's the worst. But no, uh, you know, he is 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 just an unapologetic suppressor of. of Basic human rights. He's overseeing a tightening down on the internet. He's schwangwing officials left and right. He's uh, all sorts of things that, that that seem extra legal. It seemed you know like he may be building a cult of personality. All and yet um, we're 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 wondering you know where is the opposition to him? Where where is why 
this is this is, an American reader would be excused if he came away thinking this guy is you know he needs he's ripe for an overthrow, and then there's you know tucked away in one paragraph is this discussion about how well we don't have accurate polling statistics, but this guy who seems pretty informed thinks that his support is you know roughly eighty <laughs> percent, and then so so and then yeah maybe there's some effort to explain that that is yeah because of the popularity of the anti-corruption campaign. And because of his his nationalist bona fides, but what else is there? Something else there? Uh, and w- w- does this piece really help the reader to understand what I think is like the the fundamental disconnect between American understanding of China and the Chinese understanding of China? I think the first I think the first point is does Xi Jinping need popular support? Um, I think much more crucial is does he have the support of the elites. people who matter. Right, elites. Um, and that's just sort of throwing ahead to my recommendation, which is Alice Miller's recent piece uh-huh. on China Leadership Monitor, where she goes into exactly that, saying Xi's power is that he has the backing of a lot of people who need, who thought change needed to come and that she was the person who could engineer it because of who he was. And I think if we are talking about um, public understandings um, or, or, or public support for Xi Jinping, Again, look at what the internet did. What the internet did was throw into sharp relief for people how problematic the Chinese state operated, right? Before before the internet, in, I imagine you're in a small town, maybe somewhere in Jiangxi or something, and you know that your local party secretary is a vendor, but you can deal with him. And look at these pictures in the newspaper and look at these pictures on the television. China's doing pretty well, Right. And the internet shattered that where I, re- I remember at some point when you were sort of the news as it was brought to you by Weibo, as, you know, China reporting became in, 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 in many, many ways, <laughs> true. Um, true. sort of you just had one scandal after another, everyone more egregious than the other. From my dad is Li Gang to pictures of, let's call them literally naked officials cavorting <laughs> with um, cavorting with mistresses in very expensive hotels. And it was just an unrelentless flow of these allegations. And to the extent that there was already a, a sort of a, a, this sort of moral crisis, um, a lot of a, a, a lot of people sort of um, a lot of people seem to seem to think certainly um, Xi Jinping was the man to solve it. But Kerry Brown in his book about she essentially writes that, you know, he's not completely clean, but he's the cleanest of the bunch. And he has that reputation. And it's just that sort of at that moment of sort of deep political crisis and cynicism about the system that a strong guy comes in yeah. and takes over and makes a train run on time. David, what do you have for yeah, us? Yeah, great. Uh, but my, my recommendation is uh, has to do with the philosophical aspects we were just talking about. I, I just discovered this book, so I haven't really finished reading it. You know, That seems to be the new norm. I have about 15 books that I'm two-thirds of the way through or half of the way through. <laughs> so you writers out there, like if you want, yeah, if you have an important idea, and this goes for you too, put it, Roger, in, the first few put it in the first few chapters because no <laughs> one will get to the end of the book, right? So you have to get it in early. But uh, it, I think it's a good and very readable book on these very – and it also – is the first book I've seen since the revival of Confucianism that tries to link this into the, to the very west, east-west ideas we've been talking about. So it's good to read for that reason as well. Oh, very good, very good. Thanks, guys. Thank you. Should we and go get a beer? Congratulations with the lustrum. Oh, thank you, thank you, thank you. Should we uh, go get a, a, a burger and a beer? Sure. Sounds good. David? Uh, a beer, perhaps. Okay. I'll get a salad. All right. All right. <laughs> all right. Well, and we'll see you next week on Seneca. Thanks, and take care. Bye.